Reflections on Homer's Iliad by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 6 Invertebrates are those who wear their skeleton on the outside and vertebrates are those who wear it on the inside. And it's pretty much uh, agreed that the movement from the invertebrate to the vertebrate stage is an evolutionary progress. If we use that as a metaphor for a spiritual process, you see that this making spiritual progress is much more problematic and it's much more difficult to, to determine whether spiritual progress has been made, either with a culture or with a person. Well, so far we've been, in reading the Iliad, we've been using the various devices for taking the psychic temperature of, uh, or the spiritual temperature of what's going on in the poem. And what I'd like to do now is add this invertebrate-vertebrate one and, uh, and collate it, if you will, with several of the others that we've been using and then launch into today's material. One of the things we've been using to look at the poem is this response, which can either be grievance or grief, some uh, encounter with, uh, with the fact of our mortality, uh, which, which, res- which provokes either the response of grief or the response of grievance. What I'd like to add to that now is something out of this invertebrate-vertebrate metaphor, which is to exteriorize an experience or to interiorize an experience. Last week we closed with uh, Simon, I, I think I mentioned at the end, Simon Weil's breakdown of uh, suffering and violence. The false gods turn suffering into violence and the true God turns violence into suffering. It could be, we, could, we might be able to, to try to bring all these together. We might say that to exteriorize uh, a, an emotional experience is to convert the suffering back into violence. Not necessarily frank, overt violence, but the kind of social tensions which are the larval stage of violence. So that is to exteriorize, to take that experience and to suddenly find ways of getting it back out into the social realm so that I, to stir up the the social realm. To interiorize would be to turn that confusion and violence or proto-violence into a suffering experience, that is to say something in which I experience inside me the tension of the opposites. The alchemist understood that to seal the container in which that tension is taking place is the beginning stages in the production of personality. Uh, Not Hollywood personality, but personality in a religious sense. It begins when I find the wherewithal to keep contained that tension of opposites and not necessarily thrust it back out onto the world. Well, to to externalize, to, to go back out into the social order with it, uh, the reward for that is one usually has a, as a social identity awaiting him. And uh, the social identity is reinforced by the tribal myth and so on and so forth. So there's a place to take it usually. One can go back out into the social order with it. Uh, to internalize it uh, is more problematic. Usually the internalization doesn't happen until the easygoing mechanism of externalizing it has broken down so that one is forced to internalize it. And the, the people who we study as the, as the missing links, these transition figures that we study that are in, in mythology and, and literature, which is our mythology, are usually people who have had that easygoing externalization of their experience frustrated, and therefore they've had to begin the process of internalization. Hamlet, Achilles, Oedipus, the ancient mariner, etc., etc. People who have had the experience of being isolated, experiencing solitude or being deprived in one way or another of the social attire that makes it easy to take that back out into the social realm. Achilles, you see, has been has had two experiences so far in the poem of this order. One is he has been isolated from the field he has been taught to, to earn his honor, mainly the battlefield, and he has experienced more recently in the poem the loss of his social attire in the loss of his armor. He gave it to Patroclus, and Patroclus lost it to Hector. So, dare we hope that given these two preliminaries, some transformation is going to happen. I think what Homer does is that he awakens our hope 
in this transformation, and then he toys with it. He alludes to the possibility that it's happening or about to happen, and then he dashes the hope. And then a little while later on, he awakens the hope again, and we sit on the edge of our chairs, and he dashes the hope again because he's going to make this poem last till the last book of the poem, right? He's not going to end it before that. So the question about Achilles is, will he remain an invertebrate, relying forever on his armor and the identity which it provides him? Or will he step out of it and reclaim his humanity, which is what it has cost him to, to stay with the identity that goes with the armor. We visit Achilles, and he is talking to himself, which is always a good sign at this transition stage. He says, Ah, why are they turning tail once more, unmanned, outfought, and driven from the field back on the beach and ships? I pray to God this may not be the last twist of the night. My mother warned me once, that while I lived, the most admirable of Myrmidons would quit the sunlight under Trojan blows. It could indeed be so. He has gone down, my dear and wayward friend. Now, this is very revealing all of a sudden. Achilles tells us he knew. His mother told him that the best of the Myrmidons, and he, he clearly regard, uh, considers that to be Patroclus, was going to die before he died at the hands of the Trojans. Further confirmation of the fact that uh, he has at least unconsciously and unwittingly conspired in the sacrifice of Patroclus all along so that he knows already that Patroclus is at some level of his being, not a level that he visits very often. He knows that Patroclus has been sacrificed uh, to a larger cause. However, he doesn't know it at the place where he spends most of his waking life. Because when Antiochus comes, Antiochus says to him, Lord Patroclus fell, and they are fighting over the body, stripped of armor, Hector has your gear. It's very important to scrutinize this passage and to, to see what is not said. Uh, we'll come back to it. Now we find out that Achilles does not know because he experiences what looks to us like genuine grief, and I think it is. A black storm cloud of pain shrouded Achilles. On his bowed head he scattered dust and ash in handfuls and befouled his beautiful face, letting black ash sift on his fragrant chiton. Then, in the dust he stretched his giant length and tore his hair with both hands. So at some level he does not know that Achilles Patroclus is dead, or else he could not have experienced that kind of sudden grief. The phrase here translated by Fitzgerald, in the dust he stretched his giant length, is the stock phrase to describe a fallen warrior. It's used to describe Achilles. So what happens here is that we're getting the death of Patroclus and the death of Patroclus and superimposed on the death of Patroclus are funeral references to Achilles' dying. And there are several of them, and I'll, I'll point out a few of them. First of all, this same phrase, here translated, in the dusty stretched his giant length, is the phrase used at the end of the Odyssey to describe the death of Achilles at the hands of Paris, the physical death of Achilles. So we're already anticipating the death of Achilles. Uh, on the, in the same vein... The poem says, From the hut the women who had been spoils of war to him and to Patroclus flocked in haste around him, crying loud in grief. All beat their breasts and trembling came upon their knees. They came around Achilles, who is lying in the dust, and they gathered round Achilles and began to wail. That is exactly what the women do around the fallen soldier. They're doing it around Achilles. This is We're talking about Patroclus' death, but what Homer has done is superimposed on it a kind of dying of Achilles. Antilochus wept where he stood, bending to hold the hero's hands when groaning shook his heart. He feared the man might use sharp iron to slash his throat. Remember how Athena had kept Achilles from killing Agamemnon? Now Antilochus has to kill, keep him from killing himself. And the focus is on the death, the symbolic death of Achilles. And now Achilles gave a dreadful cry 
one more funeral reference to Achilles before we go on. He cries and his mother comes, Thetis, the goddess Thetis. And it says, The gentle goddess wailed, which is what you do with, with the dead soldier, the gentle goddess wailed and took his head between her hands in pity, which also is a stock phrase for what the women do with the dead soldiers. When Hector dies and Andromache finally receives the body, the poem says, Andromache of the ivory white arms held in her lap between her hands the head of Hector who had killed many. Again, Achilles is now in the place of the fallen warrior. Achilles is mourning Patroclus. The women and Thetis are mourning Achilles, but doing so in such a way as to echo the mourning of uh, Andromache for Hector. So that all three of these deaths, Patroclus's, Hector's, and Achilles's, are being lined up with one another, are being superimposed on one another. So we see them as as really subdivisions of one phenomenon. And Thetis says to Achilles, why are you weeping? This is the second time Thetis has come to Achilles. The first time, Agamemnon had taken Briseis away and he was weeping. Thetis came and said, why are you weeping? And he said, well, I've lost my honor, essentially, to Agamemnon. She comes now and Thetis said then, what shall I do? Achilles says, Ask Zeus to take the side of the Trojans and uh, defeat the Greeks so they'll come and plead to me. She says, Now, why are you weeping? What great sorrow came to you? Speak out. Do not conceal it. Zeus did all you ask, which now really is reminding him that everything, including the death of Patroclus, was an answer to the prayer to Zeus that the Greeks be defeated. She says, Achaean troops, for want of you, were all forced back again upon the ship's sterns, taking heavy losses none of them could wish. So it was all in that original prayer. Achilles now voices to his mother his great sorrow. My greatest friend is gone Patroclus, comrade in arms, whom I held dear above all others, dear as myself, now gone, lost. Hector cut him down. Wait a minute. Nobody said that. Antilochus said, Patroclus has fallen. He has been stripped of his armor and Hector has your gear. Now, it's certainly logical perhaps to draw the conclusion that Hector killed him, but there's Hector didn't kill him for one thing. And secondly, uh, Apollo is the primary killer of Patroclus. But the point is that he has not been told that. He asserts that because he needs to assert that. He is told several times that Apollo killed Patroclus and he ignores it, conveniently ignores it because it's not going to do him any good. That piece of information is not going to help him a bit. As far as he's concerned, it has to be Hector. And then he goes on. Hector cut him down, despoiled him of my arms. Now, in the English translation, there's an interesting thing happens here in this translation. Hector cut him down, despoiled him of my arms, massive and fine, a wonder in all men's eyes. Well, if you read the whole sentence in the English, there is at least a small hope that that last phrase, uh, adjectival clause, modifies Patroclus and not the arms. That hope is immediately dashed. What it proves is that Achilles' central focus is still on the armor. And watch how his mind drifts off what, he's, what he has said is central over to what in fact is central. Hector cut him down, despoiled him of my own arms, massive and fine, a wonder in all men's eyes. The gods gave them to Peleus that day. They put you in a mortal's bed. He drifts all away from Patroclus back to the arms. See? And even more to the point, a few minutes later he says, I must reject this life. My heart tells me reject the world of men. If Hector does not feel my battering spear tear the life out of him, making him pay in his own blood for the slaughter of Patroclus. That's the Fitzgerald translation. Lattimore translates it more in keeping with the literal Greek. The last phrase is, tear the life out of him, making him pay in his own blood for stripping Patroclus. Achilles says, I, I, will, I have to reject my life or else I have to kill Hector. 
And Thetis points out that uh, it's not an either-or situation anymore. She says, you'll be swift to meet your end child, as you say. Your doom comes close on the heels of Hector's own. So he is told straightforwardly by a source of authority that he does regard uh, well that as if, if he kills Hector, he signs his own death warrant. He knows that. He says, may it come quickly. There is, for the rest of this poem, a kind of, almost a kind of death wish in Achilles' aggression. Uh, but what's happening, I think what Homer is doing in, by these various references is that he's, again, taking these three deaths, Patroclus, Hector, and Achilles. They have to be, for the, because of the narrative demands, they have to be sequential. But what Homer is doing is making them existentially simultaneous so that we, we're seeing through each one of them to the other one. They're all part of one process. And they're all associated with the armor of Achilles. Achilles says, Now I must go to look for the destroyer of my great friend. Well, that's going to be a roundabout looking, is it not? First of all, when you think of Oedipus, who says he's going to find out who it was that killed Laius, right? Achilles, who has at least unconsciously conspired in the death of Patroclus, is now going to go out and look for the destroyer of his great friend. He thinks he knows who it is, Hector. He has never been told it was Hector. He's going to be told straightforwardly that it was not. It doesn't slow him down in the least. But who, in fact, is the killer of his great friend? Nestor suggested it. Achilles conferred in the decision. Apollo struck him on the back. Euphorbus speared him. Hector killed him. The tensions of the Trojans and the Greeks brought the whole thing about. Who was? Who? That's the mystery story. Who is the destroyer of Patroclus? And the scandalous answer is everybody. The messenger goddess Iris comes and says to Achilles, you will lose honor if Patroclus' body is despoiled. And Achilles says, I can't go out there. I have no armor myself. How shall I go? And Iris says, well, just stand on the moat. This is very reminiscent of what Patroclus did. Remember that? Just stand on the moat and they will see you and the Trojans will perhaps back off and your men can bring the body back into the Greek camp. And what follows is what might be called the transfiguration of Achilles. Tremendously important scene. And so I want to dwell on it for a minute. First of all, it's very solemn. It's the beginning of his Aristia. It's very solemn. Achilles, whom Zeus loved, now rose. That's the moment that the stout-hearted of Homer's listeners have been waiting for, right? When is he going to stand up and get back out there? And here we have it. He's been down dumping ashes on his head. And now, Achilles, whom Zeus loved, now rose. Around his shoulders, Athena hung her shield, like a thunderhead with trailing fringe. Goddess of goddesses, she bound his head with golden cloud and made his very body blaze with fiery light. The transfiguration scene of Achilles. Now, this, this transfiguration scene is brought to you by Athena, sponsored by Athena, the goddess of war. And it is brought about because she hangs her shield on Achilles. So let's go find out what this shield is all about. We're talking shields now, of course, you understand. In book five, we get her shield described this way. All around upon it in a... In a Garland rout was figured, enmity, force, and chase that thrills the blood, concentrated on the Gorgon's head, reptilian seething fear. What a phrase, huh? The Gorgon's head, reptilian seething fear. The purpose of putting imagery on the shield was to terror, terrify one's enemy. Okay, so this nice piece of work is what is bestowing that transfiguration aura on Achilles. 
Athena's shield is the tool of mystification designed to terrify the enemy. It narrows the frame of reference, to, to use a photographic metaphor, narrows the frame of reference and shortens the depth of field so that everything is focused right there on, what, on, on the deed. And the deed is to kill the opponent. But watch what Homer does with this. He provides a simile, as he often does, that these similes towards the end of the poem are, are something. Imagine now the pyre of a burning town will, to will tower to heaven and be seen for miles from the islands under attack, from the island under attack, while all day long outside their town in brutal combat, pikemen suffer the war gods winnowing. At sundown, flare on flare is lit. The signal fires shoot up for other islanders to see that some relieving force in ships may come. Just so, the baleful radiance from Achilles lit the sky. Just so, just how so? The simile has two images. One is the, the pyre, the burning funeral pyre of the dead corpses. It's a perfect, because the emotional energy of what's happening is deriving in part from the death of Patroclus and the grief over Patroclus. So, part of it comes from the burning funeral pyre, and the other part is flare on flare summoning reinforcements. The Greeks begin to see Achilles in this transfigured light and, and they rally. And here, perhaps one of the most important episodes in the poem, I think. Achilles stands there in that kind of transfigured light and he wails. He lets out this wail, which I think we have to f feel coming from the depths of his soul. A wail coming up, which is the wail about everything. The death of his friend has confronted him with the woeful facts of existence. He has to give his life. His friend gave his life. He has no choice. He, uh, his future is wiped out. His other options no longer exist. And out of the depth of that anguish comes this wail. And right at that moment, we're on the watershed between grief and grievance. It could go either way. With the slightest nudge in one direction or another, it could go one way or the other. Okay? So here comes the wail. He lets out a wail, and the next line says, Not far from him, Athena shrieked. The great sound shocked the Trojans into tumult. As a trumpet blown by a savage foe shocks an encircled town, so harsh and clarion was Achilles' cry. Imagine this wail coming out of Achilles, which could be grief or grievance, is now intersected by the war cry of, of uh, Athena. And with that spin on it, it becomes grievance once again. It was the very stuff of Job was coming up out of him like the very stuff of Job. And Athena intersected it and, and conflated with it her war cry and it became grievance again. Tremendous moment in the poem. Remember in Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra when there's a, there's a rumbling under the ground and one of the soldiers says, ah, oh, that's the god Hercules whom Antony loved now leaves him. Hercules is the, great, is the great heroic archetype. So that this heroic archetype abandons the warrior. It makes a great sound. Well, I, here's the literary version of, to, to prove that it also makes a lot of noise when it enters because that terrified the Trojans. But suddenly they saw Achilles and saw him gathering up that force again and turning it into grievance. They recover Patroclus' body. The Trojans have a meeting. Hector decides they will stay and fight, even though he's warned not to. And then we shift, the scene shifts profoundly, and we go with Thetis to plead with Hephaestus for new armor. Suddenly it is, it is courteous, gracious, beautiful setting.
Hephaestus, hobbling around, sweating, uh, besmudged from his from the forges in his in his blacksmith shop, changes into into the attire of a host, welcomes Thetis. She has helped him in the past. Very gracious. And we want to look at Hephaestus. He's very important. Hephaestus was hurled. He tells Thetis. He, she, he, he reminds Thetis of why she, he likes her so well, and she reminds him of why she needs the armor. They, they both tell the background on each other. Hephaestus says, As you know, Hera threw me out of heaven because I was ugly and a marked cripple. The story varies whether he got the limp from being thrown out of heaven or whether he had it and that's why he was thrown out. But he was, by the way, to keep to bring that other thread in, you know, he, he, he represents the divine equivalent to the predetermined sacrificial category. That is to say, he's a, a cripple and he's ugly and he's socially marginalized by the Olympians. You remember, he's the one that brings about the Olympian reconciliation by being the one they all laugh at. Remember that? That's the pharmacos. He's the opposite to Lucifer. Lucifer is thrown out because of his brightness and pride. And Hephaestus is thrown out because of his ugliness and his crippledness. He land, Thetis takes him in and it turns out that he is the great craftsman, the great artist. There's no distinction in Homer's time between those two categories. He becomes the artist. And so Hera takes him back, always, uh, always looking for somebody who can turn out some nice jewels. The point is, he is a rejected outcast. He knows something that keeps him from being as superficial as the rest of the gods. Homer loves him. Homer loves Hephaestus. Homer really plays with the other deities, but Hephaestus is a, holds a special play. Having suffered social marginalization and rejection... Hephaestus knows how fragile even Olympian social order is and therefore he spends time trying to reconcile things, trying to put things in their proper perspective, trying to bring about some kind of reconciliation. He has great compassion the way Homer does. The key to Hephaestus is this, the short version is this. He has found something more interesting to do with fire. Fire is the image for war in this poem. When war breaks out, it's like fire. And hatred is like fire, etc., etc. And Hephaestus is the one who has discovered something more interesting to do with fire. Both Hephaestus and Homer are using the tool that has always been used before to reinforce the cultural myth for Homer, it's the epic. For Hephaestus, it's the shield. And both are using that tool to subject the myth to a larger vision. You see? Perfect parallel. And Homer is absolutely conscious of that. Should be, a point should be made. Thetis explains to Hephaestus all this happened making the point that it was Apollo that killed Patroclus. The poem says, uh, his first job was the shield. And he's going to create the armor for Achilles. But the shield is what it's really focused on. The maker used all his art adorning this expanse. Poet means maker. These two things come together perfectly here. And now we're going to get the central artifact of the poem. He pictured on it earth, heaven, and sea unwearied sun, moon, waxing, and all the stars that heaven bears for garland. That is right in the center of the shield. Earth, heaven, and sea, the sun, the moon, and the star. Now remember, Athena's shield had the Gorgon's head, reptilian seething fear, and he has the sun, the moon, and the star. Hers closed down the vision around the deed, the terrible deed that had to be done. And his opens it out. It's as though Hephaestus understands Achilles and his species. He understands that Achilles is, 
that if he's going to communicate with Achilles, he had better direct the communication to the back brain. He is not going to get anything through to him by giving him moral lectures. The best he can do is present him a picture that will speak to the back brain. So in place of the Gorgon's head, the sun and the moon and the stars. Two cities, the city at peace and the city at war. The city at peace, he pictured then two cities, noble scenes, weddings in one and wedding feast and brides led out through town by torchlight from their chambers amid chorales, amid the young men turning round and round in dances, flutes and harps among them keeping up a tune and women coming outdoors to stare as they went by. Two things going on in this town of, uh, that are called, our attention is called to, weddings. Youthful coming together, the, the central institution of a, of, a, uh, of, of a culture. And then another. A crowd then in a marketplace and there two men at odds over satisfaction owed for a murder done. You see, this is not some utopian place. So it's not a utopian place. It's a place where, where the human condition lives out. A crowd then in the marketplace and there two men at odds over satisfaction owed for a murder done. One claimed that all was paid and publicly declared it. His opponent turned the reparation down. And both demanded a verdict from an arbiter. Remember Agamemnon and Achilles had this thing about reparations and whether, one turning it down. Not. But this is over a murder. Demand a, a verdict from an arbiter. As people clamored in support of each and criers restrained the crowd, the town elders sat in a ring on chairs of polished stone the staves of clarion criers in their hands, that's the staff of the speaker, with which they sprang up each to speak in turn. In the middle there were two golden treasures to be awarded to him whose argument would be the most straightforward. Finally, the, the, the lawyer gets con confirmed in his profession. But that's the city at peace. Not a city without conflict, but a city in which that conflict has found the social wherewithal to be resolved without breaking out into reciprocal violence. The crime is the kind of crime that would have brought reciprocal violence on. But it, so it's not, you know, it's, it's not petty theft. And it's being resolved right there. The city at war. Now, remember, Achilles and all of his fellows regard war as the great glorious exercise which will give them honor and glory. They will be remembered. In the city at war, actually on the whole shield, but it's most relevant here, the city at war, there's n no one, no, no warrior is named, no warrior stands out. There is no lasting glory. All the deeds done are, are profoundly forgettable. There's nothing noble happening, nothing noble happening in the city at war. Wartime then around the other city were in place two columns of besiegers, bright in arms and yet divided on which plan they liked, whether to sack the town or treat for half of all the treasure stored in the citadel. And our sympathy goes naturally to the townspeople, as it does in this poem. The townsmen would not bow to either. Remember, they're besieged. That means total blockade. That means they starve you out. Besieging essentially means they starve you out. Secretly, they armed to break the siege line. Women and children stationed on the walls to watch with men whom age disabled. All the rest filed out, this is important, as Ares led the way and Pallas Athena, the god and goddess of war. Figured in gold, these are the two gods, Figured in gold with golden trappings, both magnificent in arms as the gods are, in high relief, while men were small beside them. It's important. No. When these had come to a likely place for ambush, a river with a watering place for flocks, they were disposed. They, they there disposed themselves, compact in bronze. Two outlooks at a distance from the troops took their post, awaiting sight of sheep and shambling cattle. Both now came in view, trailed by two herdsmen playing pipes, no hidden danger in their minds. The ambush party took them by surprise in sudden rush. Swiftly they cut off herds and beautiful flocks of silvery gray sheep, then killed the herdsmen. These are the people we just, for a moment there, were sympathizing with. And they have now gone out in their desperation, led by Ares and Athena, and killed innocent herdsmen. The besiegers hear the sound. They come. A battle is joined. 
Now remember, we were told that this all began because Ares and Athena, figured in gold with golden trappings, both magnificent in arms as the gods are, in high relief while men were small beside them. Following those two Pied Pipers into battle, but then when they actually join battle, what happens is this. All figures clashed and fought like living men and pulled their dead away. See? That's the difference between those fabulous songs of World War I and the trenches in Europe. See? Ares and Athena always look dashing in the arms of war as gods do. You see? And then all the bucolic scenes, plowing, a field being plowed, a field being harvested of grain with the king standing in the middle with, quietly in the middle with a staff in his hand. Everything is peaceful and ordered. A vineyard is being, is being harvested, harps, tunes, tunes of longing, songs for the joy of it. And then a realistic scene of natural violence, two longhorn cows, a, a bull brought down by two lions, and nobody being able to do anything about it. So it's not, a, again, it's not some kind of a romanticized natural order, but one that has its own brutality as well. And then the penultimate comment on it all, which is a dancing floor. And I think this is, first of all, we see the sun and moon and the stars, and then we close back in and see two cities, and then we back up as though we're, you know, going back away from the earth. And then we see the countryside. And now we get back up and you, you, where, where we would in our day see, begin to see the outlines of the continent or maybe even the planet. What Homer sees is because he's, he's a mythographer, he sees dancing. He says when you get high enough and you look down at all that, whether it's the city at war or the city at peace, you know what it is? It's a dance. A dancing floor. As well, he fashioned like the one in royal Gnosis Daedalus made for Princess Ariadne. Here young men, most desired young girls, were dancing, linked, touching each other's wrist, the girls in linen and so on and so forth, circling there with ease the way a potter sitting at his wheel will give it a practice twirl between his palms to see it run. Circle dance. Or else, again in lines as though in ranks. They moved on one another. Magical dancing. It's as though at this level of vision, he's saying, from up here, guys, it's just two forms of dancing, the circle dance and the line dance. Remember the city at war? They drew up lines to face one another. And the battle began. From up here, guys, it's just the round dance where you reach out and touch each other's wrists and go like that, or it's the line dance. That's Homer's comment on it from, from that other place. He and Hephaestus see it from that other place. So I say he and Hephaestus see it. Notice, all around a crowd stood spellbound. We still are, aren't we? As two tumblers led the beat with spins and handsprings through the company. This is romantic, but to me, the two tumblers are Hephaestus and Homer. This is not a cynical view. What is, I think it's Homer's saying it's fundamentally a dance, and we just have to decide if it's going to be a line dance or a round dance. Well, as I said, uh, Hephaestus addresses his message uh, not to the moral reasoning, but to the back brain, and uses art to do it. But what he has done is he has taken out of the centerpiece of the, of the shield that terrifying, reptilian, seething fear and put the sun and the moon and the stars and then the whole cosmos, the human cosmos and then the commentary on it, which is it's a round dance or a line dance and then around that, the cosmic ocean. This is the great enlargement of vision and then Thetis brings it and presents it to Achilles and his Myrmidons now, you remember, you have to remind yourself, it's being presented at the moment when the historical exigencies of their moment is that they stay focused. You see, they're in the midst of a war. And so this new vision is delivered to them. 
at the moment when they are straining to, to keep their vision narrow so as to accomplish the necessary deed that lies before them. Thetis comes and the poem says this. She laid the armor down before Achilles, and I want to focus on this next phrase, clanging loud in all its various glory. Lattimore translates it, all its elaboration clashed loudly. Something is being said in that phrase. All its elaboration, its various glory, its great variety. It is the scope of this vision that is causing the clanging as it falls at the feet of Achilles. And next the poem says, Myrmidons began to tremble at the sound, at the sound of the clanging of the variety of the vision. The Myrmidons dared not look straight at the armor as their knees shook. Now, isn't that it? They are poised on, at, at the threshold of the great battle. And they have, they, they're fresh out of boot camp, trying to keep that narrow focus. See? And here comes this great encompassing vision. And what would it do if they looked at that vision? Or, or more to the point, what would it undo if they looked at that vision? If they looked suddenly, not at the Gorgon's head, but at the sun and the moon and the stars, what would that do? Galileo said to the bishops, well, here, just take a look through my telescope. And they said, no, thank you. Imagine Teilhard de Jardin trying to explain the newosphere to the National Security Council. You see? How do you keep that focus on the awful deed that must be done in light of the vision of the sun and the moon and the stars? And that's what makes the Myrmidons' knees tremble. The Myrmidons are famous for having knees that will not tremble. I'm here to tell you. They could look at these Gorgon shields and their knees will not tremble. But one with the sun and the moon and the stars and their knees tremble because that is a vision that will undo that little narrow mythology that they've given them their lives to. How is it that we can be in the presence of this vision and not get it? Well, before we go to Achilles' response to this armor, let me read something from Ernest Becker. Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of awareness, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. As awareness calls for types of heroic dedication that his culture no longer provides for him, society contrives to help him forget. Or, alternately, he buries himself in psychology, in the belief that awareness all by itself will be some kind of magical cure for his problems. But psychology was born with the breakdown of shared social heroisms. It can only be gone beyond with the creation of new heroisms that are basically matters of belief and will, dedication to a vision. So to go from the shared social heroisms of a less conscious past to the dedication to a vision, a heroism based on a dedication to a vision, is what this 3,000-year-old poem depicts as its central artifact, the Shield of Achilles. It recognizes that, there is a heroic, that the heroic motif cannot be simply uh, left behind. But if it could be brought into play with regard to a greater vision, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars, then perhaps it could live up to its spiritual potential. But he also points out that we have a way of drinking and drugging ourselves into oblivion and can be in the presence of something that could evoke the shared, something that is that visionary, uh, but we simply don't see it. And that's exactly what happens to Achilles. We just had this marvelous shield described to us. The Myrmidons won't look at it because it scares them. And what happens when Achilles looks at it? Here it is. Anger entered Achilles as he gazed. His eyes grown wide and bright as blazing fire with fierce joy as he handled the God's gifts. How, we ask ourselves, could he 
possibly have responded to that shield in that way. It is totally inappropriate as a response to that work of art. He is an invertebrate and he's getting his armor back and the art that decorates it is not what he's interested in. That will, if anything, speak to his back brain, but it will not, what he is responding to is the fact of the armor, not to its deeper meaning. And what he's mostly responding to is his own psychodynamic anger once again. Achilles calls the council. He says to Agamemnon, Agamemnon, was it better for us in any way when we were sore at heart to waste ourselves in strife over a girl if only Artemis had shot her down among the ships the day I made her mine? Huh? Hey, where did the, where, what's happened? What's happened is that Briseis was part of the earlier rationalization no longer needed because he now has a very much superior rationalization. Achilles is an angry man. And like all of us when we're angry, he needs some rationalization to explain his anger. And the normal, you know, hits and bumps of social life provide us with those rationalizations. And he seizes on those rationalizations which are closest to him. And he says, well, I'm angry because of that and that. And he's got more anger than can fit into those two that's. And pretty soon he conspires to bring about something else that's even bigger. And then he can say, I'm really angry because of that. But, But what's really going on? What is anger? Anger is unlived life. Unlived life that has become vindictive at having been left out. How much of Achilles' life has to be unlived in order for him to be the warrior he is? Unlived life is coming up and making him narrow, the narrow manifestation of existence that he is. He has enormous energy and he has tried to contain that enormous energy in an archetypal spectrum that is very narrow and the result is anger, resentment, frustration. And one has to have a rationalization. He's got a great reason now. He no longer needs Briseis and he drops that earlier rationalization with ease. And he says to Agamemnon, I drop my anger now. Which, of course, he has not dropped at all. He has just changed it from being angry at Agamemnon to being angry at Hector. Achilles puts on the armor in a very ritualized way. And as he does, the Greek cause reconvenes. As he's putting on the armor, the text says, Reflected glintings in all directions, shone with glare of bronze and shook with trampling feet of men. That is to say, as he's putting on the armor that Hephaestus made, all of the Argives are putting on theirs as well. It's the reconvening of, of the Argive cause. But notice what Homer says about it. He provides a little simile for the interpretation of that event. It's a very complex simile. As when at sea, to men on shipboard comes the shining of a campfire on a mountain in a lone sheepfold, while the gusts of night wind take them, loath to go far from their friends and loved ones, over the teeming sea, just so Achilles' finely modeled shield sent light into the heaven. We're told that when he puts on the shield, the culture reconvenes. What the simile says is the opposite. The simile says that it's like a light that 
people on shipboard see as they are against their will being blown out to sea far from their friends and loved ones. Eric Neumann said it's very easy to... Well, he didn't exactly put it this way, but he would have if somebody asked him. He said it's very easy to misconstrue the recollectivization of a social order for a revitalization of culture, but it's not. If you remember, Carl Jung made some very stupid comments about Germany in the 30s when the Hitler movement was just starting because a lot of people saw this as a rediscovery of authentic roots of German national identity. And in fact, it was some kind of mindless recollectivization, retribalization, you see. But it's hard to distinguish that at first from a genuine cultural revival. And so as this Greek cause appears to be gathering itself up again, Homer throws in a little simile to say, What's really happening is that it's dispersing and that everybody is being blown against their will out to sea far from friends and loved ones. What a tremendous combination of images. And then it says, as he finally gets the gear on, it says, the poem says of Achilles, the gear sat on him light as wings. It buoyed him. It buoyed him up. In other words, he fills out that armor and becomes the armor itself. The one thing, uh, 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 Virgil's Aeneas uh, lacks many of Achilles' qualities, but one thing about Aeneas is that the armor is a burden to him. Uh, there's, that, there's at least that much progress from the Iliad to the Aeneid, uh, but not for Achilles. It is, it buoys him up make one minor point at the very end. He, Achilles speaks to the horses, his, his immortal horses, and one of them, Xanthos, says to him, he tells about the death of Patroclus, and he says the magnificent god, he refers to Patroclus as the magnificent god that Leto bore, killed him in action, and gave Hector glory. The son of Leto is Apollo. So Achilles has been told straightforwardly that the killer of Patroclus was... Apollo, he immediately ignores it because that piece of information is not going to is is not going to help him gather himself up the way he's trying to do. Well, just just to reflect for a second, the two things that I that that were surprises to me in the text uh, that I want to kind of leave at the end is one one is that that wail that comes up out of Achilles which could go either way. It's just right there. And Athena is strategically located so as to, so as to shriek her war cry right into that, conflate that wail with that war cry and cause it to go in the direction of grievance and anger again. That seems to me to be tremendously important. And secondly... Well, th- three things. And the secondly is the re- reaction of Myrmidons to the larger vision. Their, na- their knees shake and they won't look at it. And finally, this thing that seems like a cultural reconstitution is in fact a, cu- a cultural disintegration. Fabulous. 3,000 years ago. I make up a lot of things, but I'm not making up those three things. <laughs>